Welcome to How I Got Here with me, Jarena Whitfield, the podcast that celebrates remarkable individuals who have defied the odds and blazed their own trail. Today, get ready to meet the epitome of a unicorn. Our guest, Arian Long, started college at just 15 years old. She decoded Anthrax by 17 and disrupted a multi-billion dollar industry before turning 30. She's a self-proclaimed chief estrogen officer at Femly, which is a groundbreaking high-tech feminine care company. Stay tuned as we dive into her inspiring journey of innovation, empowerment, and ending period poverty. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you. I'm super excited too. So I normally start every interview with this question of what did you write in your high school yearbook when it asked you what you would be doing in 10 years? But knowing that you went to college at the age of 16, at age of 15, I'm sorry, got me interested in what your answer would be for this question. Would it be the same? Would it be different? I think mine would be the same. It would probably say something to the effect of like gunning for world domination. Ooh, gunning for world domination. I love it. So let's just talk a little bit about you going to college at such a young age. How does that work? Who made that decision? So I actually fell in love with science and I initially thought that I would be a cardiologist, but In eighth grade, I had a badass science teacher that got me into this program called Women in Science, where I started taking courses at Stony Brook University in New York. And then later, my family and I relocated from New York City to Prince George's County, Maryland, where I ended up um, not only graduating at 16 from high school, I started school at Morgan State University. So that was kind of how it happened. But in a funny way, I actually got skipped. I ended up starting my 10th grade year in Maryland when we moved. And that was in February. By May, I had graduated because I completely aced all the testing. And at the time, their state level test, um, they weren't that hard for me. Wow. So wait, no, I need to fully understand this. So how did you test out of your grade level and then jump two grade levels essentially to graduate within a couple months span? Were you doing like tutoring on this side or were you, did you come into this new school district already at an advanced level? Uh, That's funny. So no, I never did tutoring, but I also was the student that totally never did homework either. I did what the hell I wanted to do. And I think for me, it was just the realization that like, first of all, I feel like New Yorkers, we look at the world as like New York is its own world. And then everybody else is like other. It's like this New York centric view of things. But ironically, with a state and city that's so diverse, that prioritizes diversity, I not only was like fluent in Spanish as a child, I just benefited in the best of ways and had access to a lot. I mean, growing up, Instead of going out sometimes in the summer, I was home reading encyclopedias for fun, learning about the anatomy and the physiology of the human body. And like, as an adult, I realize now that I'm very neurodivergent um, and it lends itself to excellence in many, many areas. And then I have other areas where like, I feel like I'm not as savvy as I should be, you know, especially when it comes to like social interactions, people assume that I'm an extrovert. But then when they meet me and I'm like in a corner with a book, they're like, whoa, this girl's weird. But yeah, it was just a trial and error. And 
a product of being raised in the best place at the best time. Yeah, I was going to just chime in and say, like, if you do, like, follow you on social, you would think that you're extremely, you're definitely an extrovert. So that's interesting to hear Like you're like, nah, I'd be in the corner alone reading something. And so going back to you reading encyclopedias, let's just talk about it. Was it the Britannica ones or was it just like, I think you, we talked about it before and you said your grandmother just had like a whole, like, was it like a library of encyclopedias? And were you just naturally like, interested in like reading like what sparked your interest to like this is what I'd rather be spending my summers doing so my grandmother sang with the world famous Shirelles they were literally like the Destiny's Child of their time and they're actually in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yeah like she was a big deal and that's where I get like my love for accessories and jewelry and makeup because my grandmother is a very influential part of my life and she raised me from birth ironically I also found that like education and access was a tool that she used to get ahead. She adopted me and I toured with her until I was about two years old. But then every year for a few years, my mom would have a baby and then my grandmother would then have to adopt them because we had a mom who faced addiction. And when my grandmother decided to adopt all of us, she became an educator in Queens, New York at a school called QCSD, which is the Queens School for Career Development. And there she taught students who were Brian Braille. Like she literally would split peas and like glue them to construction paper to allow blind students to read music and do it in a way that was tangible for them. So she prioritized education growing up and we had access to everything, but I definitely had like the quintessential black grandma collection of encyclopedias in the basement. And I loved it. I love it. And it's also very clear that you came from a home that was all about black excellence. Because the fact that your grandmother was cutting peas and creating her own like braille boards is wild to me. So let's talk about you going to college at 15. Like who made that decision? Did you do like the normal application process? Because at 15, I think I was just, I was out here double dutching and writing my own little fictional stories, but you were like headed to college. It's amazing. Yeah, I knew what I wanted. I mean, I wanted to be a physician I'm sure G-Wagons weren't a thing then, but like I wanted to have the flyest car. I wanted to have the best job. I wanted to make money. I wanted to change lives. So for me, every step that I made towards that was in line with that decision. Like I knew, and there's nothing wrong with mediocrity. I think that there is no life in this world that is more valuable than the next. But I just knew that like, I wasn't going to be someone that kind of settled. And that's been the mantra of my entire life. I love that. So you were already like clearly focused at a young age. And so just piggybacking off of that, like at 17, most kids were thinking about prom, but you were decoding the genetic makeup of anthrax. So please explain to those of us who don't know what that exactly means. Like what does decoding the genetic makeup of anthrax mean? Like, yeah. Talk to me about that. So, around the 2000s, I was a product of New York, and I remember being in school in Long Island when the planes hit the Twin Towers. So, I was there during 9 11. Mm-hmm. My family is 
heavily involved in local politics and the judicial system. So my father was actually working for the NYPD and had to, you know, take time to help rescue people. But I had started hearing about other acts of like bioterrorism and people were using not only biological agents like bacteria, but also chemical agents. And anthrax was one agent that was used and sent in the mail that, you know, had the potential to kill people. So this was at a time where, you know, the news was recommending that people not open mail that looked like it had a white residue or a white powder in it. And People were scared because we didn't know who, you know, these letters are being sent to and politicians were receiving them. But I had the privilege of doing some research through the Stony Brook Women in Science program where I got to look at anthrax under a microscope and kind of look at its genetic makeup and the components that would then make it so harmful. And that resonated with me. It meant a lot to be able to have access to these high-level resources. And I didn't necessarily go to like the best school in the best school district. So this type of programming allowed me an opportunity to see things in a different perspective than I would see in like my regular neighborhood. And therefore it allowed me to just think big. I love that. It's also just, again, I just think you're, and I think I told you this before, I just think you're just black excellence personified from going to college at 15, decoding anthrax, and then coming up with this new tech company, Family. But before we jump to family, like, tell me about your college experience. What was that like for you going at such a young age? I'm imagining it was like a shock just because of like the age differences um, between you and your colleagues in college. So talk to me a little bit about the college process, especially at a young age. College was a culture shock for me. And it's interesting. Like, I feel like my grandmother always gave me the advice to like date frequently and go for gold, you know? So for me, college was like this big opportunity to finally date and meet people and meet guys from different aspects. And like, honestly, the education was a byproduct of that. But it was a tough transition because I was this social butterfly who was younger and still could hold her own. But that age difference lended itself to like having a curfew and having to navigate social interactions in a way that would be okay considering I'm so much younger than even the guys on campus. And it's really funny. I ended up meeting my husband like the first day of college and completely hated him. But here we are now with the baby and it's working out. So there's that. I was going to say, I'm sure the dudes are like looking at you like we, uh, how would you? Jailbait for sure. (laughs) So after college and before you started family, what was like your career trajectory like then? Did you go into medicine like you wanted to initially? No, I feel like I launched the the marijuana, the Avon of marijuana, and it taught me a lot about entrepreneurship. Thereafter, I continued my matriculation and became a educator in the Prince George's County School System in Maryland. I then did a stint in healthcare marketing communications. And while at that job, I started Family. So it's also been interesting because I'm not a founder that has like a very vast and long career experience. You know, I have friends who they've worked 10 different jobs over like retail and corporate. And for me, the only two jobs I've worked were teaching and healthcare marketing, but it taught me enough to know what I 
I didn't want. And quite honestly, I think that my friends would tell you if they were in this interview that I was never cut out for the nine to five. I just wasn't. I would show up when I wanted. I'd leave when I wanted, take lunch when I wanted. I was not the model employee. And it. I didn't understand how my work was so superior and I'm still being questioned about why I'm an hour late. Like, so the hell what? Who cares? The work is done. And that's now very interesting as a leader who wants folks to be on time. <laughs> but at the time, you know, I did my own thing. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I completely can resonate with that. I mean, I used to have nine to five jobs after I started my company. And so when I would, you know, entrepreneurship can be up and down. So I would definitely go back into full-time jobs every now and then. And I would go into the office and I'm like, yo, why are they questioning me? Like, like you, I'm late, but I get my work done. And I just... I completely, like, I was meant to be an entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, us entrepreneurs that are in it and have been able to successfully grow and scale companies, you know, like, this is what you were meant to do. So talk to me a little bit about family. So you started family after being diagnosed with a cervical tumor, correct? Mm-hmm. So talk to us about what prompted that decision and what makes family so unique and special in the feminine hygiene world. Yes. So I launched after being diagnosed with a tumor, but it was shocking to me because I had no idea that my tumor was linked to chemicals in the pads and tampons I was using. Now, like many women, I went around to different doctors and everybody wanted to throw me on birth control. And honestly, for a month, I actually tried it, but I was super emotional. I had gained five pounds, like the side effects for me weren't worth it. And then I took a chance, right? I remember going on a platform, if it wasn't ZocDoc, it was similar to ZocDoc, where there was a directory of doctors and it showed their gender, their specialty, like what med school they went to. And I saw that there was a physician near me who was a male who was generally younger. So something told me like, take a chance on him. He's young, but you might get a different outcome. And sure enough, within an hour of being there, he did an exam and he's like, hey, you have a tumor. It's small. But we actually need to do surgery. You need to have a DNC and we'll see what becomes of it. It might be nothing. It could be something. And we later found out it was nothing. But he shared with me that while in med school, he became privy to a 2009 study that was done by the NIH, National Institute of Health, that was just starting to link chemicals and pads and tampons with many of the reproductive illnesses that we were facing. So I decided to like talk to women around me. And when I did, not only did they not find access to healthier period care, we discovered that even the organic options often include pesticides or those pad brands are made with the cotton top sheet and they'll say it, but the chemicals are still hidden underneath. So Femily was launched to provide a healthier, eco-friendly alternative. And now we're scaling with a model of distribution that allows us to place our organic feminine products for free in restrooms across the world. Love it. So what were your expectations for family? Like when you started it, talk to me about how you started it. Honestly, I was thinking like a million dollars week one. I'm an entrepreneur, bad bitch, like all of it. (laughs) (laughs) Coming out the gate. 
Oh my God. It was pain. Honestly, like it was just painstakingly exciting. And in some instances, I am now a founder that like struggles to celebrate wins. But at that time, it was just so exhilarating to be excited about something. And it was new and fresh. And even when I would go to work to my day job, I was spending like three hours of my workday working on family, negotiating the website, like hanging out in Facebook groups and learning the basics of building a business. Um, learning about e-commerce, doing all the webinars. Like I did all of the things and it was great. It kept me going. It was like the fuel and motivation that I used to get excited about each day. And then it was really funny. Early on, we got really good traction. Like we were featured in local news and TV shows and things like that. So it was wonderful, but it was definitely a series of events that I intentionally wrote out on a week-by-week basis. It was leveraging LinkedIn to meet people who knew a lot more about business than I did. And then being intentional about getting the resources that I would need to not only launch, but to grow and scale. And when you started Family, how many, was it a team of one? Did you have like a partner? Like You know, because starting a business can be a lonely experience, especially if you're starting something Mm -hmm. new, because you you need folks to bounce your ideas off of and like have a sounding board. What were those early days of family like for you? Was it just a team of one? Did you have somebody you could call up when you like had a question or just even when you were coming up with the name of the company? That's often like a hard thing too. like, what did the early days of family look like? So I'm definitely somebody that when I have issues, like in my day-to-day life, it spills over into my dreams. And a lot of times I'll find the solution to an issue, like in my dream or right in that REM period, just before you wake up. The name came to me in a dream and that was easy as pie. Like I literally did not know that Femily would be a period care or feminine care company. I could have named Femily anything. It could have been a marketing firm. One of the things I did do in the early days was I reached out to our now general counsel, our lawyer, who at the time was selling companies. So to date, Andy does about a billion dollars in monthly deals where he's taking companies public on the stock market and he sells companies that are routinely anywhere from 50 to $500 million. But I reached out to him and I'm like, hey, I don't know what M&A means. I don't know the language, but I see you on LinkedIn all the time with these wins. I want to know more about what you're doing because I would like to build a company to sell it. Previously, I'd never even looked at like company acquisitions and sales as a opportunity to create generational wealth. So I sent him a little Starbucks gift card and I asked for like virtual coffee. And of course he accepted and thought it was so sweet that I would take the time to send him a virtual coffee gift card. And the rest is history. He's now like my work husband. He's amazing. And he's been an avid supporter since day one. And you didn't know him at all. Just a cold. I didn't know him at all. And I didn't have a team. I was definitely an employee of one. But one thing I did do that I would definitely encourage all your listeners to do is to immerse yourself in your local ecosystem. I am based in Baltimore, Maryland, though I'm from New York. And for instance, as an example, our city has a program where if I hire an employee, they will pay me $6,000 per head. Like I moved my company from D.C. to Baltimore because we got hundreds of thousand dollars in free funding and four years of office space. Many major cities offer similar resources. You just have to check out 
you know, your office of workforce development or career services. But like, there's always stuff that I'm finding that entrepreneurs, especially black entrepreneurs are not taking advantage of. I used IP clinics at the law schools where I live and they did my trademark filings. Like every part of what I did in the beginning included outside support and help, but I had to dig and find that. And how many employees do you have now? Ooh, we're about to be a team of 17 and probably by the end of quarter, we'll probably be a team of 30. That's amazing. Amazing. Come on. I am shook. I'm definitely shook because it's like, oh my God. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of uh, experience in corporate. So to build a company culture and like be that many people's boss has been very interesting, but I love my team. Wait, where are you from again? What part of New York? Born in Brooklyn, went to school in Queens and Long Island, darling. The boss definitely gave me like a little bit of uh, Queens, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the good thing though is you get to create your own culture and like, you know, it's not modeled after like the old corporate culture environments, especially because you didn't have that much experience in that, that workspace. So like you get to create it to how you'd want a company to be. And like have it be enjoyable for your employees and your team. And I'm like, that's amazing. Got 30 folks. Like you'll have 30 folks on staff. That's what's up. So what were some of like your early challenges with Emily? Like outside of like coming up with this concept, figuring out how to like actually create a viable product, doing all the research and development. Just talk to me like what were some early challenges that like could have easily deterred you from like keep going along this path that like you know you got over it you figured it out and like you're still here my biggest challenge was access to money like I had the savvy as a black woman there was no shortage of talent and opportunity and creativity I mean even in tech black female founders for every dollar that's invested make it go three times further than our peers. So for me, it was just having the funding to be able to say, hey, I want to build a team. Hey, I want to spend on manufacturing. Or I would like to move my company from my grandmother's basement to a larger scale fulfillment warehouse. I just didn't have the funding to like make the moves that I needed to make to scale in the beginning. But The way that I've overcome that is through pitch competitions, grant opportunities, and strategic partnerships. Andy, thankfully, within a week of meeting me, funneled me into my first $125,000 pitch competition. And I remember like not even understanding what a pitch meant or what a pitch deck was. And we sat in a Starbucks for eight hours and he supported me and like helped unpack the language for me. Not only that, I look at many of the impact driven grants that are out here. Family is one of the companies that I believe is a chameleon. If I'm talking to health investors or health funders, we're a health company. If I'm talking to impact investors, we're driving impact through period equity and supporting students who usually miss school the week their period. If I'm talking to somebody in innovation, I can talk about my patents and our high-tech dispenser that allows you to walk up, wave hello, and get free period care in restrooms around the world. I said what the hell I needed to say to secure the bag, and I'm not mad that I did it, and I do it again every single time. But that's what I recommend all founders do. Yep. I was going to say, well, Ariane, if that was your challenge, like, how have you been getting the money? And 
I know from following you on social that you're out here a pitching queen, getting these checks and bags to run your company. But for folks who don't have like an Andy, right? What is a tip you would offer them to to find like these pitch opportunities for them to go and like present their business for potential funding? Definitely leverage local communities and national communities online. So there are organizations like Div Inc., which has an accelerator for minority founders. There's iFundWomen, which provides grants and crowdfunding. Hello Alice, which has an educational resource community, and they also give grant opportunities. There's the U.S. Black Chamber of Commerce, the National Black Business League, the NAACP gives grants, Johnny Walker gives grants, everybody is giving grants, but more important than finding the grant is executing your story in a in a way that resonates. And like, I tell people go for jugular. I don't hold back. I have gone through some very hard things while running my company, from not having funding to almost going broke to losing a daughter to late term stillbirth and being on life support, nearly fighting for my life. Like it just, I've gone through things, but I think that the one thing that I've gotten really good at is telling my story in a way that's succinct. And like, even for you, Drina, when I'm writing grant applications, I don't want to hear that you're pitching yourself as like PR. I want to talk about the impact. I want to hear that you are providing services and visibility and awareness that drives revenue for Black and minority businesses. Like as people are thinking about these opportunities, don't think that the thing you're doing is the way that you should answer. It's the impact of what you're doing. So if you were somebody that had a boutique, I wouldn't tell you to file an application talking about your clothes and how they're unique. Talk about the way that a woman feels when she's wearing your dress. Talk about that job interview that she's able to go and get because because she feels and looks good because of something you provided for her and how she can now level up and reduce the income pay and gender gap, you know, like there are so many ways that I think we could get better with telling our stories. But as a people, we aren't always told the secret sauce. So if you don't do anything else, use those two examples as a model for your business and level up your storytelling. Not you giving me a tip. On me, <laughs> on me to pitch when I'm trying to get some grants. I love it. I, I also feel like you should be giving some classes on this. You really should, or at least like some webinars, because you've been out here getting these checks to help run family. I thought about it. It's just, for me, it's rough because I never considered myself like that social media coach. Like for me, it still feels icky, but... And not to dismiss anybody who's doing your thing because I support you. But I think for me, um, I'm definitely going to lean into this and like helping people unpack the storytelling. And also not for nothing, I have built a pretty good network of people who are looking to fund a bunch of different opportunities. So I think if people stay tuned in the future, this could look like maybe a in-person weekend hosted by one of my favorite NFL teams um, in support of family so that we could help drive revenue to Black women-owned businesses. But it'll definitely be in-person because I want to meet people and touch their hands and like look into their eyes. Wait, who's your favorite football team? Well, look, my favorite team right now is the Ravens since they're one of our first NFL partners with Feminine Care in their stadium. My husband and my son just went to a game yesterday, the game yesterday against the Broncos. 
Oh, I went. I was in the box. I didn't know what the hell was going on because I don't follow football, but the food was great. We're Broncos family, and my son was devastated that y'all won by one point. He was devastated. But I love that. And I'd attend and take copious notes. I also feel like you might ultimately become like your own like VC in the future. Like I feel like it. I yeah. feel like you could you could do that as an extension of your work with family. Maybe have like a foundation or something. I think it'd be I think it'd be amazing. But I also feel like one, you're about to be one of my people in my circle to help me get some funding for with PR, just because I think you're a magician at it. Thank you. And I have written checks. I am an angel investor. And we actually launched our family foundation in, I think, just before Christmas. Wait, you already did? I have been quietly doing the work. But yeah, our goal is to align ourselves with corporate philanthropy. And because we have such an impact in underserved populations with people who actually need period care, even how I'm thinking about funding is very different. I love keeping my equity you know, doing things the way that I that I have done has allowed me get to get to a point where I still own more than 90% of my company. And that's just not something I'm willing to part with in any crazy way. So yeah, I'm definitely working in the background, but I'm looking forward to all of this. I was going to ask that, do you still have 100% ownership? Like, have you taken on investors outside of the pitch, the pitch mm-hmm. that you've been able to like, so, win? I actually have. We are backed by funding from Beyonce, funding from Pharrell. We have amazing mm-hmm. VC partners like the Overlooked VC. Queen B funded me. I literally have, I've done this in a way that felt true to me, which is not easy, you know? Like, I feel like people romanticize venture capital and investment and pitching, and they look at it as something that you should aspire to, and it's definitely not for everybody. And for many of us, I have found it to be predatory. I have friends who started off with 100% of their company, and now they're at 20% and being voted off as CEO, you know? So as I did this, it was very important for me to understand the language so that I could advocate for myself. And today I am still a board of one. I am the only board member of family. I'm the only one with decision-making power, but I, I, you know, I intentionally got to a point where I could do that. I need to learn from you. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's very true. A lot of people do romanticize outside investors. And I think it's amazing that you've been able to really keep majority ownership and it's phenomenal that you're a board of one. Like nobody's telling you what to do, voting you out or voting on decisions that you want to do with your company. That's dope. So I also know during the pandemic, you launched a new product. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So early on when I started Femily, I knew that I could reimagine the period care experience in restrooms. I got tired of seeing those dusty, antiquated stainless steel dispensers that require a quarter. And then if it wasn't already frustrating enough that most of them were empty, we found that during the pandemic, there was a national and international coin shortage. So I started talking to investors about how I could build it. And we actually found that Everyone wanted me to hire like a co-founder or a CTO. But what I did was I went to the drawing board and after I had my son Asa in 2020, 
the world stood still. We went through government shutdowns and more. And I finally had the opportunity to go around to offices without people in them and talk to the janitorial team. So that year, I started the design for what is now our EcoFlow Feminine Hygiene Dispenser. And that announcement went viral with 70 million views and 3,200 interested corporate partners. So we literally went from, you know, a small tech company that a few organizations knew to now being on the map. And at the same time, corporations have dedicated 15% of their supplier diversity spend to Black-owned businesses. And I'm the only Black woman in the country with the machine of this type. So it's been interesting because I definitely feel like it's a situation like Chameleonaire says, like back then they didn't want me. Now I'm hot, they all (laughs) want me. But it feels good to have survived this long when the average business closes in three years or doesn't make more than 70000 in revenue. Next year, I've told people, like, hold me to it. Next year is our $25 million year. Mm-hmm. And two years after that, $100 million. Like, I'm playing for scale. And it's scale for me, you know? It, everyone's business doesn't have to look like this. But for me, I know who I am and I know what I could do. So I'm finally hear and thankful that people are listening in the way that they need to. Out of those 3,200 interested parties, like what does that look like for you? Will we see this portable dispenser in those 3,200 locations? Like what is happening? Oh my gosh. So you will see us in more than 3,200 locations. I can't say names, but we are coming to some of the biggest hospital systems in the United States, some of the biggest hotel chains in the United States. We even have um, retailers and pharmacies that have signed up for our dispenser. And thankfully, and here's a note to growing creatively, we have been in a position this year where we've been pre-selling our product. So I didn't even have to go to investors and say, hey, give me 20 million. We're like, nah, you guys want to partner with us? Here's how much you need to pay up front and pay the rest upon delivery, you know? But like everything for me is an ode to being a scrappy Black woman that gets it done. I love it. I love it. I'm excited to see this rollout. So talk to me a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like as you're growing your business, as you're scaling, as you're coming up with new innovative products. What does your day-to-day look like? Because you're also a mom and you're also a wife. So I know your day is a little bit crazy. (laughs) That's so funny that people, everybody assumes that. And I think that, honestly, I think that it would have been crazy had I not married a great husband who was very capable. But very capable. (laughs) I had the baby. I delivered the baby. I spent nine months building the baby. So I'm going to spend nine months traveling and living my life. Um, So my day to day now looks like waking up. Usually my day starts. It's been a bit earlier, but my day used to start at 10 a.m. And I would start work at 1 p.m. and end work at 6 or 7 because I wasn't a morning person. And like I said, I've always been someone that does what I want to do. Now I start a little bit earlier at 8 I do a daily check-in and touch point with my chief of staff, my executive assistant. I kiss the baby. He doesn't get up until noon because him and I go to bed at 1130. Shout out to ADHD. And then hubby takes it from there. And I come home and dinner is made most days. And probably once or twice a month I cook, but I hate cooking. (laughs) So what's the one thing that you do as a form of like self-care then? I date myself. You date yourself? I date myself. And I mean, like, 
I mean that in the truest of fashions. It was something that my grandmother taught me early on because she's like, you're not you girls like and this is her talking to my sisters and I. She's like, you girls are the cream of the crop. You should not be trying to settle down, chasing after no man. You shouldn't need the man for anything. He should be an addition to your life, not your whole life. So like ever since I was 19, I would just take myself out if I could budget to like the best restaurant I could find just once a month and take a really good book. And ironically enough, that kind of lended itself to meeting amazing people. Like I have some amazing exes out there. Shout out to y'all and just other people who've become great supporters and additions to my life. But if you treat yourself a certain way and build a standard for yourself, you're never going to settle. Even me as a wife, I would have never gotten married if I didn't have a badass husband who could hold down the fort. Like, you're not doing me a favor by marrying me. I know where I'm going. <laughs> I'm the moneymaker. Like, <laughs> so you, we would. this would not have happened if it wasn't absolutely a compliment. And then it's awesome because I have a man who, as badass as I am, he's a provider and a nurturer and a supporter and a protector. And now it's winter and he's thick. And, and even better to look at every morning when I'm heading out. So I just love it. It's great. I love it here. Oh, I love it here. As we think about the listeners, right? And some of them are starting out. Some of them are in the middle of building, one well, in the middle of scaling a business. Some are just thinking about a concept. What advice would you give someone that's looking to kind of start any business that's chartering new Waters, look at you. Look at Andy calling you while we're on this interview. I think everybody needs Andy. I need Andy. Hey, Andy. Everybody needs an Andy. Everybody needs a champion. So, and that kind of brings me back to your question What should business owners do as they think about building and scaling? One, build an advisory board for your business. And I don't mean like an equity advisory board with paperwork. I mean, get four or five people together who know a little bit more than you do, who can help guide you as you make decisions and figure out your direction. The other thing is build a board of champions. So not only do I have an advisory board for family who helps me with the business, I have a personal advisory board of people who know my life goals and are helping to guide me there every step of the way. When I go through personal stuff, they support me. When I'm crying because I had a bad day, they're like, all right, you get to cry for 48 hours, but let's talk about solutions. Like build it in a way that um, is comfortable for you. My third piece of advice would be to craft a business plan. And this does not need to be a 30 page antiquated document. This just needs to be three or four pages that outlines your problem solution, the market you're serving, your differentiator, how you're going to go to the market. How are you selling your product or service? How much for? How many people does it take to get to 100,000, 500,000? That way you're mapping it out and you almost have a daily Bible of what you should adhere to. And then the fourth, if you don't do anything else, think about crafting a pitch deck or a corporate sponsorship deck, and just make sure that you have a PowerPoint or a Canva presentation that's maybe up to 10 slides that you have on call because I got so many opportunities by just being ready so I didn't have to get ready. Like today, I'm coming from speaking for the National Mission Investors Exchange Conference in one room. I got to speak to 500 mission-aligned investors, some of whom 
don't even want their money back. They're like, look, we have 10 million to give away. We don't want the money back. Do you have a pitch deck? And literally in front of them, I was able to say, hold on, boo. Let me go to my email. Let me copy this link. There's my Doxin link. And when you go to the Doxin, put your email in and you'll see our deck. Like, had I not been ready, mm -hmm. you don't know if you're going to get another chance. And it's interesting because somebody said it, and I don't remember who, but by procrastinating and not doing the things that you need to do, it is the arrogant assumption that God is going to give you yeah. a second chance to do it. So I operate in that stay ready okay. so you don't have to get ready. And these are living documents that like even me with over $1.2 million in funding in, I am constantly updating these decks. I probably have five versions that I did last week because if I'm talking to a medical funder, it's a different deck than a retail funder. It's a different deck than a partner, you know? So just have a few and always use a link and always use a Docsend. That is a platform that allows you to upload your document to it, but it's cool because you can either password protect your document or email protect it so that anybody who sees that corporate sales deck, you have their email. And what happens is you can see, like if I made a link for you, Drina, I could see if you shared it with anybody and then I could hit them up and say, hey, Joe, I saw that you viewed the deck that we sent to Drina. We love her. Thank you so much for hitting <laughs> us up. Let's meet, you know? Like, it's also a way to protect yourself because that. us Black women, we have creativity and there's no shortage of it, but it's often, you know, replicated. So protect yourself. What program do you recommend for that? Definitely DocSend is my number one. Okay. If you're getting documents signed, use DocuSign, but DocSend is like my North Star. Everything from a pitch video to a grant application, I would put it in there all the way to a corporate sales deck. and. What's interesting about that platform is that you actually get a dashboard where you can see how long people spent on your pages. And here's why that's important. If I am pitching, let's say, for laughs and giggles to Harvard, and I see that they spent a lot of time on my financial slide, like they spent 30 seconds there, I know that on our second call, all their questions are going to be financial questions. Mm -hmm. So it helps you get prepared. Oh, I love that. I meant to ask you this. Is is retail part of your long-term strategy? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I want to say it could be. It wasn't at first, but we found that in cities where we provided our period care and restrooms, people loved it. And they immediately went to like local stores to say, hey, do you guys carry family? So it's funny because we've had retailers like Target banging on our door for years CVS, um, we've had so many opportunities. So we're thinking about it, but my North Star is building out a team that can manage that because bathrooms are one crazy distribution channel, let alone a shelf. And in all actuality, I think that shelf space is harder because you have to fight to get it and fight to keep it where I don't have competition in restrooms. Mm -hmm. Smart, smart. Real quick, I want to ask you some quick fire questions. Just add a little fun to this. Outside of like the, that advice you just gave us not too long ago about basically always be ready so you don't have to get ready sort of thing. What's the simplest advice that you've received that has helped you along this journey outside of that piece? Be yourself. Don't hide behind the business. And also don't think that you have to be overly present. I think as entrepreneurs, hustle culture almost 
ingrains it in our head that you have to be busy to be productive. And I have learned as an entrepreneur that that is the farthest from the truth. In my best months, I found that I probably spent two or three hours working on the business a day, just two or three hours. And the remaining time was like taking my two-year-old to the park, going swimming in the summer, going to get my nails and feet done or a facial or just going to see family and laugh and Google with them. I still, as a 33-year-old mom, like curl up in bed with my grandma. So for me, it's like if you are mapping things out and strategizing in a way that keeps you consistent and accountable to your goals every week, you should be able to see where like you knocked three to five goals out. Mm -hmm. And on a monthly basis, it seems small, but you'll very quickly look back and see like, wow, we have actually gotten very far. Do you want to be busy 12 hours a day fighting for $25 in consumer revenue? Or do you want to be busy three hours a day and get one huge corporate partnership to, you know, support Mm -hmm. the mission? It's just it's a trade-off of what you are willing to do with the time that you have to spend, but we are all on limited time. Love it. We're all on limited time. Are you a FaceTime or phone call type of person? I am a FaceTime. As you can see, Andy's FaceTiming me. I just love, yeah, I'm just, I'm the crazy auntie, even though I'm a mom, I'm the crazy auntie that'll FaceTime you with like a bonnet on and just tell you about yourself. (laughs) What's one thing you would say to your 15-year-old self? Yes, girl. That's what I would say. The My 15-year-old self is me today in smaller form with bamboo earrings. Like I literally <laughs> haven't changed. I feel like everybody in my life would say the same thing, but like I have always been this little spitfire and I'm appreciative of her because when the days are hard, I have to look in the mirror and remind myself who I am. Mm-hmm. What favorite thing you, can't you live without? Banana pudding. Like easily top 10. I know that kids should be like in the top three, but like, I don't know. My baby is awesome. He's incredible. He's great. But is he the best thing I've ever done? I don't know. Banana pudding is up there. Like, and I feel like as a mom, like society conditions you to be like, oh, the kids. And I'm like, yeah, he's going to be an adult one day. Like I need to have my own thing going so that when he leaves, I'm still good, you know? But yeah, banana pudding is it. Ariane, thank you so much for your time today. What's next for family? What should we be on the lookout for? Be on the lookout for growth. Be ready to snap your gorgeous selfie with a family dispenser in a restroom near you and be ready to get to know me in a different and more tangible way. I think that that would be my goal because my girlfriends say that like, watching you online is a totally different you than you get in person. And they're a hundred percent right. So I'm looking forward to growth and opportunity and stepping away when needed, but also having boundaries and just navigating a path to success that will make me feel good when I'm 90 years old and wrinkled up, but still a baddie. I love it. And still a baddie. Yeah, I had to sneak that part in there because, you know, we don't crack. (laughs) Where can folks find you, follow you, get all the good tips from you? Let's share those social handles. So I am Ariane Long on LinkedIn, or you can do LinkedIn.com slash Femily CEO. On Twitter, I'm Ariane Long and Femily is F-E-M-L-Y.com. Now, if folks slide into your DM like you did Andy's on LinkedIn, or... Are they, can they expect a response? Like, would you? Yeah. 
Absolutely. You will 100% get a response. Now, I can't tell you if it's going to be me, an executive assistant, or my chief of staff because homegirl was not always good at boundaries and she's getting better, but you will 100% get a response. And if you give us a little time, if it's a question about resources, I'm known for like just dropping links in there. And then also if you follow on social, I routinely like try to drop like grant lists and other she items. Does. Yep, you do. Ariane, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited for you. Also looking forward to seeing these classes come into life because I definitely think you should do them. I'm definitely going to be trying to take a selfie with the family dispensary if it's if I can find one by me. I, yep. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Drina. It was amazing. Of course. Thank you all for listening today. Thank you to our guest today, Arian Long. This show is hosted by me, Drina Whitfield, produced by Keena Williams and Blake Lou Merwin, edited by Matt Pro, and brought to you by Wit Productions. If you loved today's episode, we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you back here on the next episode. Oh, and if you want to keep up with me, follow me on IG at Drina Whit PR. You can follow the show at How I Got Here underscore and Wit PR at at WIT PR. That's W-H-I-T-P-R. See you next time. Thank you.